Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. If your go-to card is a debit card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And there are no fees, period. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey everyone, there's no new episode this week, so instead we're here to introduce you to a new member of the HuffPost podcast family. D is for Desire is hosted by our colleague Noah Michelson and explores sex, sexuality, relationships, and love from angles you could have never imagined in health class. You may have heard a trailer for the show play during a break on last week's podcast, but we're here to give you a chance to listen to a full episode about a topic Bachelor fans know all too well romance and the lack of it and questioning the very concept of it in this episode of d is for desire we hear from josie a woman who thought there was something wrong with her until she was 46 years old when she discovered the term aromantic the first three episodes of d is for desire are already available with more episodes premiering on fridays this summer you can listen and subscribe to d is for desire wherever you get your podcasts check the link in the show notes to subscribe when i was five years old i was in love with my neighborhood garbage man i know it sounds crazy but he had muscles and a mustache and i wanted him to kidnap me i literally fantasized about him driving up and hauling me off with my family's trash (sighs) and he wasn't the only one I fell in love with my best friend Brad, with Mr. Rogers, even with Optimus Prime from the Transformers cartoon. No, seriously, I fell in love with a cartoon semi-truck. Young or old, human or not, I was boy crazy. Now many years and many men later, I'm still in love with the idea of love. And whenever I'm single, I hear that same little voice in my head telling me to get off my ass and find someone to fall in love with. Now, that's my relationship with romance. And chasing love may be the story that you know best too, but it's not the only happy ending. I'm Noah Michelson, and this is D is for Desire podcast where we explore the sticky questions about love and sex lurking in our heads, hearts, and pants from angles you could have never imagined in health class. In this episode, we're interrogating romance head-on, which is something that doesn't happen a lot in our world today. Think about it. The romance industrial complex is all around us. Countless rom-coms and bridal TV, pop songs, 
and the entire institution of Valentine's Day. Love is always in the air, and it can kind of end up polluting everything. But what if you aren't interested in any of it? For people who identify as aromantic, romantic attraction is hardly felt, if at all. And I say hardly because identities exist along a spectrum. You can be aromantic and still desire human connection, sex, intimacy. The list goes on and on. But the point is this. Romance doesn't motivate everyone. And you may not know this because of our cultural obsession with that kind of love. So, let's see what decentering this teaches us. Here's one woman's not-so-romantic love story. I first realized that there was... Terminology for what I am um, when I was 46. I knew when I was pretty young, though, that I didn't quite experience the world in the same way that um, other people around me did. This is Josie. She's 50 years old, lives in Minneapolis, and identifies as aromantic and asexual, which means she's not romantically or sexually attracted to other people. But Josie obviously didn't know these terms growing up. I was about 10. My family was at a church service on a Wednesday night, and there was um, a guest evangelist and his family who um, showed up to preach and sing that night. And this evangelist had a son who was about 12 years old, blonde hair, blue eyes, cute as a button. Hmm. And all of my friends were going absolutely nuts over this kid you know, giggling, laughing. And I remember looking at my mother and, you know, pulling her aside and saying, what is wrong with them? (laughs) And um, she just looked at me and she said, it'll happen to you at some point. And I remember thinking, God, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) As I, you know, as I got a little bit older, I was still just really, really interested in you know, horses and reading and writing poetry. I notice when somebody is um, physically attractive, but it, it, for me, it doesn't go any further than that. And so, you know, my teenage years and into my 20s, it was just kind of very confusing. I did a lot of acting hmm. when I was in high school. Did you think back to that moment when your mom said, you know, it'll happen to you you too at later moments and think, well, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm going to keep waiting? Or did you get to a point where you're just like, nope, this is just not going to happen for me? Well, um, I grew up in a really, really small town in North Dakota, like 700 people. So all through high school, I was just like, okay, there's nobody I'm interested in dating But, you know, I'm in a small town of 700 people. When I get to college, I'll probably want to do this. I got to college and, you know, I tried dating a couple times and I'm just like, this is not working for me. I went to a very, very small um, fundamentalist Bible college in North Dakota. So again, I just thought, okay, my dating pool is really small and, you know, Maybe when I'm done with college and, you know, I moved to Minneapolis when I was 22, on my 22nd birthday, actually. So I got to Minneapolis and I'm like, 
okay, maybe now I'll be interested in dating people. And I tried dating pretty hardcore from about age 21 to maybe 24. Um, by the time I was 24, I was like, this is not fun. I'm not enjoying this. I'm not good at this. Like Josie, most of us can relate to growing up in a culture that tells us to find romance. Put yourself out there. Go on dates. Go on second dates. And fit the mold of a quote-unquote successful love story. And that story is still, for the most part, that you'll settle down with one beautiful person of the opposite sex who will perfectly suit you and change your life. Now, some people spend years going on heterosexual dates before coming out as queer. Others endure committed, monogamous relationships only to realize they're polyamorous. Romance is a feeling, but it's also a construction of cultural expectations. To understand more about this, I spoke with Elizabeth Brake. She's a professor of philosophy at Rice University, and her work is all about how we define romance and how we fit ourselves into it. Well, I mean, I think romance is something that's very culturally defined. And if you look at the history of what romance has meant to people, there's a lot of variation in it. So when historians of marriage and the family talk about history, they talk about what they call the love revolution in marriage. You know, it's it's not that people haven't always fallen in love and had sexual attraction and romantic attraction, but there was historically a point that we can document where suddenly people began to aspire for romantic love within marriage. So marriage used to be a political and economic institution, right, to create, you know, a small household where people could divide up the labor. It wasn't viewed as something that would bring personal happiness, and it wasn't viewed as something that was going to be entered to out of romantic love or sexual passion as opposed to convenience, right, or marrying the person whose parents happen to own the farm next to your parents' farm. It relates to the Industrial Revolution, people moving into cities and working in cities where they get away from like small rural communities. And they also are able to support themselves and thus have greater choice over who they marry. But there comes this expectation that marriage will be romantically fulfilling. And then when we think about the history of marriage in the United States, marriage here has almost always been seen as something that should be consensual and should be a love match. And this, again, relates to kind of broader historical issues, like the idea that government should be consensual, we shouldn't be ruled by someone whom we haven't selected. And so now there are these profound, like, cultural, commercial pressures to enter into romantic love matches. According to Elizabeth, combine this view of marriage with a certain set of feelings, and you basically have our cultural definition of romance. But I think part of romance is the desire to spend time with another person, to look at them, to touch them, um, often to be wrapped up in fantasies about them. Um, Often it can be associated with kind of infatuation or the sense of butterflies in the stomach. 
And it's not necessarily sexual. Um, that's the other important thing in thinking about aromaticism. Um, because you could be asexual but romantic, meaning you could have no sexual attraction but still want a romantic relationship with someone. Or you could be aromatic but sexual. Um, so romance and sexuality are also two distinct things, which is interesting because, you know, we often conflate those culturally. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think for most people, those go hand in hand. And, you know, when you're growing up and you think of um, you're going to meet someone and fall in love and then you're going to have sex or the love is actually the gateway to be able to be sexual. Right. Yeah. And so we conflate a lot of things as a culture. Um, so sexual attraction, romantic attraction, erotic love, marriage or sharing a life together, um, whereas other cultures have, you know, taken those things apart, right? So, you know, in different cultures, it's been much more um, the norm to have sexual relationships separate from marriage or to have romantic friendships um, that were platonic. Elizabeth came up with a word for this phenomenon. Ready? Yeah, so the term that I coined, amatonormativity, is supposed to describe um, treating a certain relation type, a romantic, sexual, monogamous, dyadic relationship, as the norm, um, meaning descriptively the assumption that most people seek such a relationship, and also normatively the assumption that that kind of relationship is good for you. And so the most basic way to describe how those assumptions work in social life is if you meet someone who says, I'm aromatic, you know, I'm not interested in a romantic relationship. Very often, um, that person may encounter the attitude, oh, you must be looking for a romantic relationship, and you just haven't found one yet. Do you have any feeling for what percentage of the population might be aromantic and um, either does identify that way or has no idea that that's even identity and doesn't even know that that's who or what they are? Good question. Um, so part of the issue is that there's no research that's being done on aromatics because it's such a little known um, orientation. And then there's the related problem, as you mentioned. Um, people might not um, be aware of aromaticism as something to identify with. So um, someone who's lacking feelings of romantic attraction might think there's a problem with them. They might think um, that, you know, they have a physical or a psychological problem that they need to overcome. So they, they might see it as like a disorder rather than simply an aromatic orientation. Let's get back to Josie. Where we left off, she was in her 20s and dating. But to say that things weren't going well would be kind of an understatement. What was dating like for you? Give me, you know, sort of a typical date and how it affected you. Um, well, a typical date was kind of, you know, somebody would ask me out, you know, for dinner or whatever. I would go. You know, the guys that were asking me out, it was like somebody I met at work or, you know, whatever. It would be two hours of really, you know, stilted conversation because I didn't know these people very well at all and then they'd try to kiss me or something or hold my hand and I'd be like okay we're done <laughs> and it was just like that process repeated for three or four years and by the time I was 24 I'm just like I'm done with this you know I'm not good at this I don't like it so if I don't like it I probably shouldn't do it anymore 
And by that point, were you still thinking, I just haven't found, quote unquote, the one? Or were you thinking, actually, maybe my life is just not going to be with someone else and I'm okay with that? I would kind of say a little bit of both. You know, I wasn't about to um, be with somebody that I didn't care about. Mm -hmm. I didn't see the point of, you know, being in a relationship just for the sake of being in a relationship. You know, it's something I just put on the back burner. It wasn't something that I cared a great deal about. Mm -hmm. You know, I had friends. I had a job that I loved. And, you know, that was pretty much enough for me. Um, I did end up getting married in 2000. After the break, we'll learn about Josie's marriage and how the moment she discovered aromanticism changed everything for her. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Emma, what's the first thing that you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would it be sleep? Would it be get a delicious pastry from the bake shop around the corner? Would it be, I don't know, get some actual writing done? Yeah. Read a book. I mean, my list is extremely long these days. There are not a lot of hours to spare. And, you know, a lot of us do spend our lives wishing we had more time. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and actually make it a priority. Yeah, this is something that I am often working on with my therapist. It helps you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash love to see it today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash love to see it. So it's been a few years now, but I still look back on my time planning my wedding so fondly. I mean, I was so excited to get married to my partner and to plan a big party that really reflected who we are and our friend groups and our families. And it was also very complicated and there were lots of moving parts. It wasn't always easy. Well, Claire, maybe you should have used Zola because you can plan your entire wedding in one convenient place with Zola. Yes, I've thought this many times in the years since. I mean, with Zola, you have free planning tools like a customizable checklist and website. There's a venue and vendor discovery tool that matches you with your dream team. I mean, everything on Zola is just designed to make your wedding journey as easy as possible. And with invites that are super fun to create and a wedding registry packed with gifts that you actually want, Zola takes you from save the date right to thanks so much without breaking a sweat. When I was planning my wedding, honestly, it was just so hard to keep track of every component of the planning process, it would have been so much easier in retrospect and let me enjoy the really fun parts of planning a wedding more if I just had everything centralized. And that is exactly what Zola makes so easy. I mean, that is like the number one advice I would give anyone planning a wedding today. Start planning at Zola.com. That's Z-O-L-A.com. 
Are you one of those people who thinks they don't have time to prioritize wellness? If so, Aloe Moves is here to change your whole mindset. From beginner to advanced, Aloe Moves has the flower class that will fit your whole schedule, even if your schedule is very complicated and ever-changing like mine is. And their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending on what you're feeling that day, which is so convenient. They've got award-winning workouts like sweat-inducing yoga flows, HIIT classes, or reformer Pilates workouts. Truly, truly have it all. Because you can also find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quieter moments. I am one of those people who really struggles to prioritize wellness. I did before I had kids, and now it's even harder because you're always doing pickup or drop-off. You're making a lunch. You're like dealing with some need that your children have or you're working and Aloe Moves allows me to just fit those workouts in, in those spare moments when I find myself with an extra 30 minutes of time, I can do a yoga class, I can do something that gets my heart rate up and it really works with my lifestyle. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to alomoves.com now and use code LTSI20 for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's alomoves.com code LTSI20. alomoves.com code LTSI20. I am someone who is perpetually facing the issue of my closet is messy and full, and yet I feel like I have nothing to wear. Mm -hmm. But Quince has been an absolute game changer for my style. Same. If I really need a new luxury basic, I know where I'm going to find one that is going to fit the bill, work for a lot of different occasions and styles. And I'm also going to stay on budget, which is a huge plus. They have items like 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters for just $50, organic cotton sweaters, washable silk tops, and timeless 14-karat gold jewelry. The best part is that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And by partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passing... uh, and passes the savings on to us. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love Quince for their wardrobe basics. Like I have a really amazing leather blazer from Quince, but I also have gotten really into like their luggage and travel accessories. I just purchased an incredible like neoprene weekender bag and it is such high quality. The color is beautiful. And I spent about half as much as I would have spent on a very similar product from a fancier brand name. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash LTSI for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash LTSI to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash LTSI. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. As they should, learning a language is so important. So if that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel, the science-backed learning language app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks, which is 
kind of wild. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college, aka so, so many days of waking up for an 8.30 class that I maybe didn't need to do at all. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Personally, I've been trying to brush up on some basic French because I am headed to go work from Paris for a few weeks. And it's been really helpful because my French is not good. But now I don't have to sound like such an idiot. (laughs) You can never sound like an idiot, but Babbel can definitely help. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash LTSI. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash LTSI. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash LTSI. Rules and restrictions may apply. How do you go from that to then getting married? My spouse is um, somebody that I had been pretty close friends with for approximately eight years and then, you know, we lost track of each other for a while and ended up re-meeting at a church service in 1999 on Halloween. The two of them continued hanging out in groups and with friends. And for a while, this was kind of all Josie was looking for. I didn't end up going on what would be classified, you know, as kind of a date until it was their birthday They showed up at my work and said, I just got paid. Let's go out for dinner. Hmm. And we ended up going to um, Pizza Luce downtown, having dinner. And, you know, my spouse at the time had Grover blue hair. There was a toddler girl that um, was walking past our table. And she saw my spouse's hair stopped And just looked at him with just this awe and, you know, just admiration on her face. My spouse got out of their chair, sat down on the floor with this child, and had a conversation with her for about five minutes. I teach preschool. You know, at that point, I was just like, I was about as smitten as (laughs) I could be, Mm -hmm. you know, being a romantic. I'm just like... You know, if a toddler likes this person, this person is, you know, a good person. And I'd like to get to know them better than I even know them now. And within two months after that, we were in their car one night outside of my house just talking. And it turns out that I am so aromantic that I was proposed to and it went over right over my head. (laughs) You know, they were talking about the future and said something to the fact that they would like to spend the rest of their life with me. And I just kind of sat there. I'm just like, yeah, okay, you know, whatever. And then about 10 minutes later, I'm just like, you know, we spend a lot of time together and we like each other. And so we should just get married. And they pretty much burst into tears because they had originally thought that I was just kind of not interested in them that way or whatever. You know, it's kind of funny looking back on our relationship, knowing now that I'm an aromantic asexual and just looking back and seeing how 
that was actually playing out in the very early stages of our relationship, mm-hmm. even though I didn't have the terminology at that point in time to describe myself as such. Right. So what made you want to get married rather than just thinking, this is someone who's like my best friend and, and yeah, I hope they're always in my life, but um, I don't think that we would get married. Was it just like societal pressure? Just that's what everyone did? Or, or how did you get to that point? We both are Christians. And so um, especially since we wanted to live together, marriage was something that was kind of, I, I do feel differently about my spouse than I do about other friends. But I would just say that our faith, our Christian faith, really played into why we got married. Josie's explanation makes sense. Relationships aren't just about attraction. They also fill space in our lives. Professor Brake had more to say about this. Well, so one thing we can talk about are social scripts. So there's a certain narrative socially of how a life should go, um, which we learn, you know, through school, through stories, through movies, through the way people respond to us. And, you know, very much in our culture, still, I think there is a strong expectation that people's lives have this trajectory into a romantic relationship. And that's what gives meaning and adulthood and responsibility to someone's lives. And we can see this in the way that people are treated in social situations. So, for example, a boyfriend or girlfriend or a fiancé or a spouse might be invited to someone's home for Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner or to a wedding as a plus one, where someone who's just a friend wouldn't be. So I think the root problem is if we see romantic relationships as like the sole thing or one of the most important kinds of relationships that gives meaning and value to our lives. And that obscures all of these other types of relationships. Definitely. That brings me to to some of the work that you've done arguing for radical marriage reform. Talk to me about how you envision reforming marriage and what that has to do with people who have an atypical romantic attraction or don't have a romantic attraction. When it comes to marriage reform, my argument is Of course, I do think that it's important that the state protects certain relationship rights. You know, I don't agree with people who think we should abolish marriage because it's fundamentally illiberal. I think that the rights we have in relationships are very important protections for our relationships against, um, you know, major institutions that determine how our lives go. But at the same time, I think those rights ought to be extended to all sorts of caring relationships. So they could be relationships of more than two. They could be caring relationships, which are friendships, which are non-sexual. And so, of course, that would apply to people who are asexual or aromantic because it would say, hey, you know, there's no legal requirement that you sexually consummate your marriage, right? Your um, relationship, if it's aromantic or if it's asexual, is still eligible for the same rights which protect personal relationships as romantic sexual relationships are. Now, back to Josie again. By 2014, she'd been married for 14 years. And she loved her spouse, but hadn't yet discovered why she couldn't feel romantic attraction toward them. Until she was surfing the internet one day. I actually discovered aromanticism and asexuality pretty much at the same time. I was reading a Sherlock Holmes fan fiction, of all things, Mm. and came across a term that I didn't 
I was just like, okay, I have no idea what that is. I'm going to Google it. So I looked it up online and ended up on the AVEN website. And that's the Asexual Visibility and Education Network. It's the largest online community of um, aromantics and asexuals in the world. And so I ended up on that website and I'm reading and I'm just like, this sounds like me. Like a lightning bolt hit you. Yeah, I'm just like, I'm not broken. I'm not screwed up. There are other people out there who are like me. You know, the first thing that I felt was just profound relief. And so I'm sitting at our kitchen table in our apartment. My spouse comes home from work. I'm crying mm. just because I am just like so overcome with emotion and I never cry. I'm not a crier. I'm not, you know, overly emotional about most things. And, you know, of course they're thinking something horrible has happened and there's something really badly wrong. And I'm just like, I pointed at the website and I'm just like, I think I figured out what I am. And, you know, they read through the material on the website and they looked at me and said, this we can work with. Ugh. You know, it's, this is going to be okay. This explains a lot. This is like super helpful and we can work with this. How do you think your life would have been different if you had known about what it means to be aromantic 20 years ago, 30 years ago? maybe even 40 years ago, what would your life have been like? I would not have wasted so much time. You know, I look at the three years that I spent, you know, trying to date as, you know, just like a colossal waste of time mm -hmm. that I will never get back. It's kind of a horrible way to look at it, but I'm just like, you know, I could have been putting time and energy into so many other things. It would have made things a lot easier, you know, in just so many ways. My mother just kind of expected grandchildren and, you know, talked about me getting married from the time I was very, very young. And I'm just like, I remember being like five or six and thinking, uh, I want to be a scientist, <laughs> you know. Uh -huh. You know, when I imagined my future, it wasn't oh, I want to get married and have, you know, 2.6 children and live in the suburbs. You know, that wasn't what I really wanted. You said, you know, when, you're, when your spouse came home and you had found this term or this website that sort of made you click into place what was going on, and your spouse was like, we can work with this, this makes sense. Does that mean that you guys had been struggling with this but didn't have the terminology and didn't know what was wrong? Was it something that you guys had talked about before? Um, yeah. I had a rather difficult childhood, and so my whole thing was, okay, I'm damaged from that, and that's why I have issues with that aspect of my relationship. And I spent thousands of dollars and scads of time going to therapists to fix, quote unquote, fix what was wrong with me. 
And it never worked because there was, you know, there's nothing to fix. I'm fine the way that I am. I'm just wired a little bit differently than, you know, 99% of the population. And that's okay. Now that you're out, so to speak, um, Mm -hmm. to your spouse, over the last four years, how has your relationship changed? It's gotten a lot easier and a lot better because I can just be who I am now. Mm -hmm. Before I knew what my romantic and sexual orientations actually were, I kind of felt like I was broken. Like I wasn't, I wasn't doing my marriage or my relationship right. Mm -hmm. Another thing that my spouse said right after I ended up finding out that there were terms for what I am, and this I will never forget, they said to me, this makes sense. Mm. They said, you know, when we were first dating and we were engaged, it almost felt like you were trying to follow a script. Wow. That's what I'm supposed to do, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm supposed to kiss you on the cheek. When we're out in public, we're supposed to hold hands. You know, left to my own devices, that's not something that I really think about. Our society is so heteronormative and so wrapped up in romantic relationships being the most important relationship that you will ever have that people who don't experience romantic or sexual attraction, you know, we can have a really hard time in relationships. Mm -hmm. Like even now I have to remind myself, okay, my spouse needs physical affection. They need to be touched. They need me to hold their hand. They need hugs. And those are things that you are willing or happy to do for them because, Mm -hmm. because, I guess it's a partnership and you compromise and you give and take, yeah? Right. After talking with Josie, I couldn't stop thinking about how she and her spouse have been married for 20 years, which is obviously way longer than a lot of people who aren't aromantic. And this reminds me of another thing Professor Brake told us. So we tend to, like, package all of these things together, which can be problematic because, you know, one thing that's often noted about the romantic or the erotic is that they're not sustainable, whereas um, we want to kind of combine them in this marital relationship, which, you know, is intended to be lifelong or permanent, although it's often not. And some people argue that part of the reason divorce rates are so high is because we expect marriage to be romantically fulfilling and sexually fulfilling. Expecting the person you're with to be an emotional partner, a sexual partner, and a constant companion? That's a big ask. Josie and her spouse define their relationship on different terms. They don't expect each other to be everything, and maybe that's why they're together. And happy. Maybe, if there were more widely known examples of what it means and feels like to be aromantic, all of us could imagine more ways of being in relationships, period. And while we're dreaming big, maybe we could even start to consider all of our relationships to be equally important instead of spending all of our time obsessing over finding the one. Maybe we could feel complete 
and appreciate love no matter what it looks like. D is for Desire is produced and edited by Nick Offenberg, Sarah Patterson, Becca DiGregorio, and me, Noah Michelson. With additional production for this episode from Sophie Nikitas and Sarah Ventre. Until next time, remember, it's not taboo if it turns you on. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.